year that's gone by and the end of the year and what's been accomplished. But I also like to use it as a very, very important time to reflect on where we are. And so that is part of our thought with this message and maybe some like it. Okay. Um, Sister Mary, I'm getting a little hum, maybe a feedback from a floor speaker or something. Thank you. <clears throat> if you're able, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. And I'm, I'm going to get here eventually, but I wanted to start with this as part of our text. All right. Adam and Eve in the garden. <clears throat> God creates Adam and, and, and he tells him to care for his creation and he gives him some commandments and we've read on this recently. The Lord just keeps bringing our mind back to this because there's so many lessons that are coming out of here. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You can eat of everything that I've given you, and I'm going to ask you to name everything, and I'm going to ask you to have dominion over everything. But there's, some, there's, there's a tree here, and uh, there's two in particular that are of particular concern to me, and this is one of them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it becomes once again, the focus of our thinking, good and evil. And this morning, we're going to talk about good. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Good is something that, you know, we, a lot of times we just take these ideas and we just skim by them and we move on to something else. <clears throat> but we need to spend time with this because it's, 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 it's deep. And an idea like good and evil is going to launch us into what we believe on a whole lot of other things. And unless we carefully spend some time with this, we're not really going to understand why we believe what we believe on other things. This is a foundational type of thing that we're talking about. So it's okay if we spend a little bit of time on what is good and what is evil. The world today is redefining what is good and evil. And it's part of my intention personally, to be able to translate my faith into everyday living so that it all makes sense. Life makes sense, that God makes sense, that my connection with eternity and, and the present, it makes sense. It's integrated. I, I don't want my life to get to a place where my faith is so disconnected from my life or that my faith somehow has its own set of problems and the rest of my life has its own set of problems. I don't know how you feel, but personally, I feel disconnected when that happens to me. And so I, I like to try and as much as I can integrate faith and belief and, and God into everyday living so that it all makes sense. And, and so we begin with this. I hope it's not too... Uh, elementary for you, but we're going to spend some time with this. And of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, don't eat from that tree. Because the day that you eat from it, that day, surely you're going to die. Now, obviously, they didn't die physically, did they? 
So the death that they were going to suffer, suffer was a spiritual death, not a physical death. In the day that you eat from that tree, spiritually, you're going to die. Very important commandment. Obviously, God has a very peculiar interest in what is good and what is evil. And so that means that we should have some kind of interest in that. Lord, as we stand and we read this, we thank you for uh, the brief time now that remains that we can share the word of God. And we ask that your spirit would deliver it. And Father, that we would benefit, Lord, most of all, that you would be clear among men and women, that your will and your commandment would be clear. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Okay. All right. And so with that, you know, <clears throat> to understand some of these elementary things in the Bible so that we can be equipped to go out. That's, that's a thought we've been thinking about lately is going out and taking something with us. And we need to be clear in what we're going out with and why we believe it. Okay? If you're a parent this morning, your children are in a, a world that um, <laughs> lots of things are being redefined. Lots of things are on the table that were never on the table before. And so as a parent, I could see where you might be interested in clarity and being able to clearly explain to your children what the Lord has to say about these things. And so that's also in our mind, that as we gather together like this, that we're equipping ourselves to help our children to go out and to know, you know, what's right and wrong and what's good and evil and what's clear. There are two ways to understand moral choices today. Now, God is telling the man here that I have a tree, and on this tree, are moral choices. There's a moral choice to do good and a moral choice to do evil. But I don't want you to eat from it. And one of the reasons that, that I have interpreted this to be is because God is the author of right and wrong. And he doesn't want us to redefine what right and wrong is, the ultimate right and the ultimate wrong. That's his domain. It's on my tree. So I don't want you to eat of it I will share with you my commandments. But when you eat of it, <clears throat> later he would say that they would become like him. Why? Because now they would have the ability to redefine right and wrong. And I, I, I believe that's a fair way to understand why he said don't eat of that tree. So it's a tree of moral choices. And today they become very clear. There are two ways that people can define moral choices today. One is to begin with the absolute, that there's a right and a wrong. Now we may not always know what that is, but we accept the idea that good is good. There's some absolute way to define good and wrong is wrong. There's some absolute way to define wrong. That's that's one way to understand moral choices. And God is the author of good and evil. It was on the tree. He made it. This is not something that Adam made. He didn't call 
as he did with the animal there and there and there and there. He didn't give a name to this tree. God did. He gave the name to what was good and evil. So it's, it's, it's an absolute way of understanding right and wrong, good and evil, is, is what God has done here. That's one way to make moral choices, is to believe that God is the author of those moral choices, and our, our idea is, I must know what his will is. Okay, fair enough? So the first way to understand moral choice is, it is absolute. If we say that this first way of understanding right and wrong is, is that they are absolute, they're not subject to reinterpretation, then what is good, right, presupposes that there's a reward for following what is good. If there were no reward, it would be hard for the human to want to do what is good. We'll get into this some of the time, but human beings tend to respond to incentives. You do what you do because of incentives. And so good presupposes that there is a reward for doing what is good and a punishment for avoiding or a punishment for doing what is evil. If you think about it, some of the stuff you're gonna have to take away and think about it later, but good and evil, they, they, they presuppose there's a reward for doing good and a punishment for doing evil. All right, that's the first way to understand good and evil. There's a second way today, especially, that the world has adopted, and that's based on what people call relativism. Relativism, that good is relative to the eyes of the beholder, the eye of the beholder. Evil is relative in the eye of the beholder. Therefore, the human being has something to say about ultimately what is good and what is evil. Now, it's important to understand the difference of these two things because later, when, th this is where it all connects. Later, when we start talking about social issues today, and you can pick up the paper or you can talk to people and just talk to your children when they come home from school. They'll tell you what the social issues are of the day. But we have an idea. What the social issues are of the day, it really matters that we understand that good and evil are either absolute or they're relative. And which, which way are we looking at it? We either need to look at it in terms of the way God instructed Adam here, in terms of the absolute good and evil, or we accept the fact that good is relative and evil is relative. We're, we're one way or the other. Okay. And there really isn't a middle ground in terms of how we make moral choices. We either accept that there is an ultimate good and an ultimate evil, and there's a reward for good and a punishment for evil, or we, we, we choose to look at good and evil in a relative way. Okay. I wrote down an example about how this plays out in real life. Let's take, for example, that you have suffered some wrong or injury or hurt by somebody else. Um, and you say, you know what? Um, I'm allowed to retaliate. They've hurt me. Therefore, I'm allowed to retaliate. Christianity forgives, Christianity prohibits 
retaliation. It's not permitted. Christianity prohibits retaliation. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's another one of those absolutes that God says, that is in my domain. I don't leave that to your discretion. But the world says, the world says today that, well, it depends on the, um, the wrong that you've suffered, whether or not you're allowed to retaliate. And then so people in their retaliation, they, they might determine, well, depending on the strength of what I've suffered, I'll either, I'll either attack that person through gossip or rumor. And if it's bad enough, I might even find a way to hurt that person. And the world says today, yeah, makes sense. Depends on what's happened to you and how bad it is, and uh, you're allowed to do that. That's an example of a relative way to interpret good and evil. But God says no. There are certain things that you're just not allowed to do and still be a Christian. One of them is retaliate. Okay. So we have to begin either from an absolute or a relative position when we start talking about good and evil. Okay. Let's talk about good for a little bit. Matthew chapter 19. Because you know what? Today the world is redefining what is good, and the reason is they believe in relativism. If you're a Christian, you believe in absolute good or absolute evil. Matthew 19 and verse 16. And this will become important in all the decisions that we make as life goes on and how social issues are looked at. We're trying to find out, is good being evaluated on a relative basis or an absolute basis? Matthew 19, verse 16. This man came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what good things shall I do that I might have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. But if that will enter into, into life, keep the commandments. Jesus told the man, Don't call me good. Now we might say, That, that seems like a harsh response, but... Somehow in this language that they were speaking, Jesus understood this man that he was equating Jesus with God. And in a way, the man was begin beginning from a rel relative point of view, not an absolute point of view. That, that I'll make you as good as God because you're a, a great teacher and a, 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 a prophet and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll honor you in this respect that I'll, I'll equate you with good. And Jesus said, no, look, we can't slip and slide through this. God is good. And everything else is not like God in that regard. Good master, there's none good but God. So, so good in this text here is an absolute. God is, Jesus is equating good with God. So I thought about this. We, we started with the tree of of, of good and evil, didn't we? Or the tree of God and not God. Good and evil, because Jesus is saying as good is like God. What is like God is good. We need to remember this. When we look at social issues today, remember this. 
What is like God is good. And what is good must be like God. We can't slip and slide through good and evil and still be a follower of Christ. We need to let absolutes determine what is good and what is evil, not relatives. And we live in a world today that says it can redefine what is good and redefine what is evil. But before people were ever born today, before some smart person or before the pundits and before the, the so, what do they call them now? Influencers. Before the, what, what, what do you have to be to be a media influencer? Good at YouTube? How, how, how much gray matter do you need to be a media influencer? But somehow now, media influencers are supposed to be telling us what is good and what is evil. Or talking heads on television or, or social commentators are supposed to be telling us what is good and what is evil. God still says, don't touch the tree of good and evil. I determine what is good. I determine what is evil. So our job is to know what is good according to what God says is good and what is evil. And he, this Jesus told the man, don't call me good because there is one good, but, and that is God. Don't, 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 don't read by that quickly. That has tremendous significance. That means we need to slow down and figure out what does God say about what is good. Okay. And before this present generation of clever people was ever born, God had provided humanity with definitions of what was good and what was evil. But somehow we've arrived in our clever state as homo sapiens and we now understand differently. And we are changing the definition of what is good and what is evil. 1 John chapter 4. And so I have three things here that I've written down about what good is, apparently as God defines it, and there are many others, but for the space of time, there are three things here that God says about himself. 1 John 4, 8. Let's see if I got this right. He that loveth not knoweth not God for what? God is love. That's an equation. God equals love. Love equals God. And people say, well, look, that says it all. That means that if you're not treating me nicely, then you don't love me. And you're a hypocrite if you say you're a Christian because God is love. There's a flaw in that logic, and it's relativism. Love is being redefined and reinterpreted by the eye of the beholder and not by what God says. God is the absolute authority on what love is. But today people want to redefine what love is. Every, and this word that's used here for love in this passage, everywhere that you read in the New Testament and you find this word, it means the same thing. It means sacrifice. It means adoration, dedication. But most importantly, this idea of love that's here that we just read, it includes 
a relationship that is uniquely oriented toward God. That when we say God is love, what we mean is God is uniquely oriented toward us as his creation in this relationship. And if we say that we love God, we are uniquely oriented toward him. That's what this word love means. It doesn't mean that whatever you prefer, I must prefer also. Or that somehow there's definitions of equity or fairness. I said this once and somebody didn't agree with me, but I still think it's true. I, you're allowed to disagree. Equity and fairness, um, they, they are divine, divine values, but the world today is redefining all this stuff. <clears throat> so if I perceive that you don't treat me fairly, then I perceive you don't love me. And I equate that, if, if you don't treat me fairly, you must not love me. And therefore, if you say you love God, you're a hypocrite. Because it's the same. No, it's not. No, it's not. This love, when God said God is love, what this love means is it's uniquely oriented to the relationship between us and God. This kind of love. It comes from heaven to us and it goes from us to heaven. Another human being will be involved at some point, but it begins with this idea there is a unique relationship between us and God. Now, let me ask you a question. Can I love my neighbor, or more importantly, can I love myself and not love God? and say that I have the love of God? Yes or no? Can I love myself or can I love my neighbor yet not love God and still say I love God because I love my neighbor and I love myself? Can I say that? Yes or no? No, the answer is no. But see, this is what the world is doing today. The world is saying, if you don't love me, if you don't treat me in a certain way, then on its face, you cannot love God. You don't have the love of God. That is not what the scripture is saying. The scripture begins with the love for God. It begins with that. Everything else flows from that. The love of God is intended to to define a unique relationship between us and God first. If that is missing, then don't talk about the love of God and everything else, if that is missing. And what the world is doing today is, you need to prefer me, you need to accept me, you need to value me, you need to treat me as a way I would like to be treated, you need to give me this way and that way and all of this. And in all of that discussion, and then you say, but, but do you put God first? Do you love God first? Well, that's not part of the discussion I'm talking about. I, what I want is, see, now, now, now we're outside the absolute good. 
And now we're in a world of relativism. This is very important. The, the relativist wants to redefine what love is. But when God talks about love and when he says he is love, it has this idea of sacrifice, of adoration, of dedication, of unique orientation toward him. That's what he means by this. Okay, there is another kind of love that the Bible talks about, which is a filial love. Philadelphia, a filial love. Filial is brother. It means brother. There is another kind of love where we have the love of the brother, that we have brotherly love, right? That's another kind of love. But it, that is not the kind of love that he's talking about in this verse. That's a different kind of love. Amen. Brotherly love is a love that prefers the brother, is it prefers the sister, is that we have kindness one toward another, right? That we treat each other with respect and all of that. That is not the kind of love that God is talking about here. It's very important because if we leave out this love, the agape love, if you want me to call it like that, if we leave that out, the sacrificial love of God, the primary, the, the unequivocal, the, 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 this first kind of love, if we leave that out and we focus on brotherly love, then we bring everything down to a human level. And that's what's happening today. People are arguing over what is good. There should be no argument over what is good. Because Jesus told the young man, don't call me good, God is good. So we should know a little bit about God to know what good is. But the world today doesn't care about God. They want to redefine what is good based on their own relative notions of what good is. Of all the social media things and social issue things that have happened over the past several years, this bothers me that the world is claiming that it now gets to redefine what good is. And that bothers me. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. I mean, you can't even have discussions with people about what good is because nobody wants to talk about God in certain circles. Exodus 20 and verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. I said there are three things that help me understand what good is. The first is God is love. But that love is a certain kind of love. The second is God is a jealous God. And God is good. So there's some kind of thing involving jealousy and good here. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, showing mercy unto thousands. But we'll get to that. God is a jealous God. Jealousy in this context means God cannot bear any rival. So the God of Israel and the God of Jesus and the God of the church is theistic, T-H-E-I-S-T-I-C, if I got it right. This God is theistic. He is unique. He sees himself as the only 
He does not permit others to join in his company. He defines, he sets forth, he lays out the landscape, he commands, he is not commanded. This God, he's a jealous God. He, 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 he cannot bear any rival. He is not pantheistic, and the way that's used today is pantheism is this notion that God is in everything. God is in the earth, God's in the trees, God's in the atmosphere, we worship all of this. No, 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 not this God, he is not pantheistic. He is not polytheistic. Polytheistic is many gods. The Romans and the Greeks, they, they, they adored or they obeyed, is a better word, many gods. This God is not like that. The culture today and the world that we live in many times is pantheistic or it is polytheistic. What is a god? A god is anything that you worship. People worship lots of things today. It becomes the most important thing in their life. You know, all of us have worshipped some other god other than God. All of us have done that. The first thing that people worship that they call God is themselves. But God cannot bear any rival. He's still a jealous God today. Despite what popular culture and the world is saying, there is still a jealous God today that governs all. He is good. He is the definition of good. He determines good. Regardless of what these other gods say, and there are many gods in society today that are clamoring and their voices are loud. And they're saying, I am God, listen to me. I am good, listen to me. Good is now this and not that. And if in 1960 good was something, today good is something else. That is a relative way to understand good. But what was good in 1960 is still good today and vice versa or 1930, or 1900, or whatever. Good, good remains good forever because it is, it, 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 is, it is not relative. I cannot bear any rival. Good cannot bear any rival. Relativism wants its own good. Okay. Relativism today, what likes to call itself good, it demands an equal place with God in heaven. And when it does that, it is polytheistic. Anything that demands an equal place with God in heaven is polytheistic. When your child comes home from eighth grade, let, let me make it simple for you, and they say, the teacher said today that such and such is what we ought to believe and that this is good and that's bad and it seems flipped to you and it seems off or whatever. Something in our society is demanding an equal place with God in heaven. And so what you tell your child is that is polytheism. That which demands equal gods is polytheistic. Now, some people love polytheism, but we just need to be clear about what's going on here. How can our children understand right and wrong if it's all muddled and it's not clear? 
but we're reading what's helping us understand what God says about love and what he says about himself. He's a jealous God. We just need to be clear. And so I get to tell the teacher, teacher, I went home and I asked my parents about our discussion yesterday, and they asked me to ask you, are you a polytheist? Well, I don't know what you mean. Why don't you tell me what you think you mean, what that means? Well, <clears throat> if what you're suggesting is there are various goods in the world, and that they're all just one good is as good as another good, and they're all relative, am I to believe then that I should treat that just the way I treat God in heaven? And if the answer is yes, okay, I get it now. You're asking me to understand that I should be a polytheist. Now, teacher, if I tell you that no, at this moment in life, I really think I'm a theist, not a polytheist, will you accept me? Because my parents and I, we worship the one true God. And we were told that there was a tree of good and evil and that he told us not to eat from it. And I'm trying to take that on its face. Will you let me avoid that tree of good and evil? And will you allow me to worship the one true God? At least how I see it. Will you allow me that? Because I am not a polytheist. I am a theist. See where that goes. Relativism wants its own God, and it's demanding equity with the God of the Bible. These are things that define what's good. Psalm 116. I've only got three things here. There are many ways that God defines himself, and therefore what is good. And if you want to study on your own, go look everywhere where God says something about himself. I am, or God is. Look for all of that in the Bible. Look for God says, God is or I am. And what flows from that, that's how God defines himself. And therefore, that is good. Psalm 116 and 5. Gracious is the Lord. Remember I said, everywhere where you see the word is, that's an equal sign. Grace equals God and righteousness. Yea, our God equals mercy. This is how God defines himself. This is what goodness is. It doesn't really matter what popular culture says it is. This is how God defines himself. And we need to be clear about what is good. Goodness is mercy. Mercy is what happens when somebody deserves to be punished, but they're let go. That's what mercy is. And mercy is usually for a greater good. It serves some other purpose to let this person go even though they're otherwise guilty. Now look at this. Mercy is never demanded and given. Mercy is granted as a gift. When someone is guilty of something in the courtroom and they throw themselves on the mercy of the court, they're saying, I'm otherwise guilty and I deserve punishment. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you to let me go free. And it's up to the court 
to decide whether that person gets to go free. It is not demanded by the guilty. You must set me free because that's my definition of what is good. I'm not really all that bad. I did something wrong. If you let me go, I'll change my ways, et cetera, et cetera. I am demanding that you give me mercy because I'm guilty. That is what society is doing today. Society today is demanding mercy, demanding to be let go, demanding to change the rules. In the past, the rule might have been this, but I am demanding now that you change it, and it's out of mercy's sake. And therefore, if you don't change the rules, then you are not merciful. You see the twisted logic here? That's not the definition of mercy. Mercy is granted. It is not demanded. God is a merciful God. He is a gracious God. Why? Because he and he alone can condemn. And he and he alone can forgive. And so we don't go to God demanding anything. We go to God begging, pleading, and I understand that we say we're to go boldly before the throne of grace, but we don't go boldly before the throne of grace with a, a cocky attitude and a proud attitude that I'm do this. Why? Because I think this is right. That comes from a world that hates God. God is absolute. He grants. We don't demand. The, these are, these are, these, these, this is how God defines himself. I'm not making this up. You say, you say, if God is good, what is good? Good is a God that is a jealous God. Good is a God of mercy. Amen? Amen? He has these attributes. <clears throat> good is a God of love. That's, that's what, and good is all these things. And if you keep going, what, what God is. God, God is absolute. A God of mercy that extends mercy, that grants mercy that is not demanded, does so because the person who is seeking mercy is also seeking justice. We live in a world today or is willing to accept justice. We live in a world today where people are not willing to accept justice. Something goes wrong, whatever. There's a relative view of goodness, and so, and so justice is in the eye of the beholder, and I get to now redefine what is good and redefine what is just. And therefore, I now demand mercy, because otherwise I would be guilty. But a person who's going to obey God and live for God doesn't demand mercy. They come as an honest sinner. The publican that was in the temple, and if I have it right, smote his breast, God forgive me, because I, I deserve punishment and I'm throwing myself upon the mercy of the court 
as opposed to the religious hypocrite that says, I'm glad I'm not like all these sinners, even as that publican over there. That person will never receive mercy. Why? Because they're not coming to the throne honestly, acknowledging their condition. An honest sinner seeks justice in the mercy of God. I acknowledge that I'm the one that has disobeyed. I acknowledge that I've got myself into this mess. I acknowledge that I tried to make everything relative so it benefited me. I acknowledge that. I'm the one, and I got myself in this mess. And I deserve justice, and I acknowledge that I am prepared to receive justice, but in this moment I'm asking for mercy. Until a person has that kind of honesty, they're not going to allow God to be absolute. And even religion finds itself making deals with God, negotiating goodness with God. Well, there must be a reason why this, and you know, God knows that, and and don't worry, God loves you anyway. And even there, you see people using the love of God improperly. The love of God demands justice. There's no other way. God cannot rearrange goodness. He can't rearrange love. And, 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 and when religion redefines this, they're participating in the same spirit that the world has, that everything is relative and there are no more absolutes. And somebody says, brother, it sounds like you're getting to a very hard religion and a judgmental religion and a, and a self-righteous religion. No, 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 no. If you're fair and you go back to the scripture that we've been using and you study it this way, all we're doing is we're letting God be God. And the rest of us, his creation. And all we're doing is allowing God to define what is good because he made the tree of good and evil, not Adam. Adam had nothing to do with the fruit that the tree of good and evil bore. It wasn't by his care, by his tenderness, by his water, by his nurture. Adam had nothing to do with good and evil that came from God. And all we're trying to do is allow the same thing today. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, when we try and make the comparison between God and humanity, let God be God. Let him be sovereign. An honest sinner seeks justice in the mercy of God. And what that means is they're willing to stop sinning. Now, people argue with that. They say, brother, that's impossible. But I want to ask you, if it were possible, are you willing to stop? Maybe in your world it's not possible, but if it were, are you now even willing to stop sinning? Let's just say it were possible. Are you willing? See, some people aren't even willing. They say it's impossible, so I don't have to consider whether I'm willing or not. And so they don't even consider it. And so what happens is a person's life 
becomes this relativistic kind of world where I, I'm in there with God and we're, we're partners together in determining what's right and wrong and good and evil and possible and not possible. And it all gets confused. And what we're left with is the culture that we have today. Where good is not good, evil is not evil, it's all a bit of everything. And it's not self-righteous and it's not improperly judgmental. It's simply allowing God to declare what is good and what is right. Now as humans, we're left to figure out how do we create a human society based on what God says is right and wrong. That's not so bad. I mean, I think if we allow the possibility that God will do a lot better job at organizing us than we can with ourselves, then there's no reason not to allow him to do it. But today people have come to the conclusion that God is irrelevant. I was reading again yesterday <clears throat> Nietzsche's comment, God is dead and we have killed him. And if you read that, it's a very short passage in a book that he wrote. <clears throat> but this philosophy, which was late 50s, early 60s, this philosophy says that God is dead and we have killed him. Basically, that by our own enlightenment, we no longer need God, because we're so clever. But the end of his philosophy was something called nihilism. There's, there's no way to reconstruct a moral society without God. And so what we're left with is nothingness. It's a pretty dismal philosophy, really. He was that honest. He said, look, if we take God out of the picture, God is dead and we have killed him. Why, ha why, ha why has the world killed God? Because God is not dead. But why has, how has the world killed God? The world has killed God by making good relative and evil relative. And, and by not allowing God to be God. They've simply removed him. And when you do that, there is no way to reconstruct a moral society with godly virtue. There's no way to do it. Why? Because your evil is no worse than my evil, and your good is no better than my good. And that's the way the world is today. Aren't you glad if you're here this morning that one day you saw yourself as an honest sinner and you said, I don't know how this is possible, but I would like to sign up for this plan about quitting sin. Because what I've done in my relative good and evil has made a mess of things. And by the way, there's no hope in the way that I'm going. And I, I'm wondering if I read about this hope that's available, and I'm reading about good and evil and that God knows what it is, can I sign up for that plan? And one day you do business with God at an altar of prayer and somehow miraculously God proves to you if you're willing to forsake sin, then I'm willing to help you to live without it. Now the rest will be subject to your human experience and, and how things go for you in life because uh, we believe that grace is not irresistible, that you can backslide, 
But there's some way to begin if we allow God to be good and everything else not. Amen. And so the last thing is Isaiah 55. What they talk about this morning, brother? They talked about good and evil, and they talked about good and how good is not relative. Good is absolute because it comes from God. And they talked about other gods and why we don't worship other gods and we worship one God, why we are theists and why we are not polytheists because God is a jealous God. And God says in chapter 55 and verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. See, the world today has placed God small and far away. If God remains small and far away, then he's not near. But God says, let me be near and I'll come near. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the, girl, the, the, the world has made God small and far away. When God is small and far away, the devil becomes larger and nearer. The, the opposition, the, the adversary to what this is becomes closer and next week we're gonna talk about evil. But when good is made to be small and far away, evil becomes larger and closer. And that is what is happening in the world today. Because God has been made to be small and far away, evil has become larger and closer. And evil is much more present in the society. And what we'll talk about next week is evil desires to masquerade as what is good. Goodness never tries to masquerade as evil. God never tries to masquerade as Satan. Satan is constantly trying to masquerade as God. That ought to tell us something. If the spirit of the world is antichrist, it is enmity of God, that means that the spirit of the world is trying to masquerade as God. Mark it down. That's just the way it is. We ought to begin with that. But that's not what God says in terms of where he is. He says, call on me while I may be found, and I will be near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy. Why? Because he's good. And to our God, and he will pardon. Why? Because he's good, and he defines what is good. For the heavens are higher than the earth. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Amen. And I'll make you a new ground and a new life and, and things that were formerly hard for you. If you allow me to be close, I will displace the evil. I will displace it. It's a battle that we're in, isn't it? Between good and evil. And one is trying to displace the other, but they're doing it with different motives. Remember this. Goodness is trying to displace evil, ironically, with mercy and justice and pardon. Evil is trying to displace good by lying and cheating and masquerading and pretending to be good. That's how evil's trying to displace good. I prefer seeking goodness over evil. 
And my job is to understand when evil is trying to masquerade as what is good. And then you're not left confused. We don't have to wonder, what's the truth? Where is God? God is not dead. And he still has a people who have not killed him. And we remember that, and we wake up every day, and we incorporate that into the way we live and how we think, right? But remember, as you go through your trials, we'll talk about this more, as you go through your trials and so forth, and you're trying to figure stuff out, and it just seems tough and all that, remember that we have an adversary who wants to defeat us. None of us have come to a place where we're immune from the adversary. None of us. As a matter of fact, it may be that the more faithful you have been in life, the more the devil wants you. If he can destroy your testimony, he can destroy great good. That's how evil works. But remember how God defines himself. I was, I was struck by this yesterday as I was studying what evil does and what good does. Evil is constantly trying to imitate good so that it can trick people into believing that it is good. Whereas good never tries to imitate evil because it doesn't want to be like that. So wouldn't you rather imitate what is good and not fight this battle? See, we wouldn't knowingly allow evil to imitate good. We wouldn't knowingly allow, but see, Satan has his devices, doesn't he? And he wants to find the saint of God and somehow convince them that evil is good. And we need to understand what is evil and what is good. That's why we started with good this morning. And you can go on, you can have your own study. Wherever God says I am or God is, seek to understand that definition of good. Let's stand. Thank you for your